Well, good morning, church. Again, it's great, great to be with you. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and find your place in the book of Acts, all the way up in chapter 26 is where we're going to land this morning as we're coming to the end of this series of walking through this great New Testament book of Acts. But we're going to land in about chapter 26. I'm going to try to walk through this entire chapter. We'll see how far we get. Depends on how fast you listen this morning, but we're going to try to cover this great, great chapter, chapter 26 uh, in Acts. So go ahead and turn there. If you need a Bible, if you don't have one, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. That's our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, you're free to take that with you uh, this morning. Uh, Let me set up a little bit of what we're going to be looking at this morning in Acts 26. Um, I think we could all say that God's way of doing things is not always man's way of doing things. Amen. If you know history through your Bible and the, really the course of human history, God has many, many times chosen to use the things that appear very, very weak to defeat things that appear to be very, very strong. And you can walk through the Old Testament, you can go to the book of Exodus when God used the weak children of Israel, a bunch of slaves really that knew nothing about fighting, nothing about battle and he used this weak group of people to defeat the nation of Egypt, the strongest army in the world at that time. God uses weak things to defeat the strong sometimes. You can go on up to the book of Joshua and God uses the Israelites who again knew nothing about fighting, nothing about military, they were just out of Egypt and they take and overthrow one of the strongest cities in the world at that time, the city of Jericho fortified with great fortress around it and they blow trumpets, something that looked very weak to defeat what appeared to be very, very strong. Everybody knows the story of a little ruddy, weak shepherd boy with red hair named David who appeared to be very, very weak but yet in his weakness was able to defeat the great Goliath, great strong man. You may remember Daniel. Daniel was used by God to really transform the life of a king, a Babylonian king, and he did it from the pit of a lion's den, a place of great weakness. God's economy doesn't work like our economy. God uses things that appear weak many many times to defeat things that appear strong. Greatest example of that ever is Jesus Christ in the moment of greatest weakness, the God-man hanging on a cross, In great weakness, yet in doing that, defeats death, hell, the grave, right? So sometimes things are just not as they appear. That which looks really, really strong and what might intimidate us or cause us to be fearful. Or we might look at our own situation and say, man, I'm just in a season of great weakness here it may be that God is orchestrating all of that because scripture says 1 Corinthians 1 God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong it may be that God's economy one of our greatest assets can be our weakness or one of the greatest times of our life could be a time of one of our greatest weaknesses Maybe you're in one of those situations today. Now, I say all that to say, as we come to Acts 26, Paul looks like he's in a very weak, vulnerable place. We're following along. We're finishing this great book of Acts, and really the end of the book of Acts follows the life of the great apostle Paul. Last time we left Paul, last week, if you remember, if you've been reading along, 
Paul was in chains in Jerusalem. He was left there after many years, or he was there after many years to share with the Jewish believers all that God had done. But the, the Judaizers had come in and they had poisoned their, their, their other Jews' mind about Paul. And they believed Paul was the enemy and they wanted Paul dead. So as we left Paul last time, he's in chains in Jerusalem. Paul has been taken into Roman custody. He's been put in chains. The Jews are clamoring, we want this guy dead. He's now in Roman custody. And if you've been reading along, you know that over and over and over, through defense after defense, the Romans basically hold their hands and I go, we find no reason to kill this man. In fact, I'll just read Acts 23, verse 27 very quickly. This is the Roman commander who Paul stood before, he said, when this man was arrested by the Jews and was brought up to be slain by them, I came up to them with troops and rescued him, Paul, having learned that he was a Roman. Verse 29, and I found him to be accused over many questions about their law, the Romans saying it's a Jewish issue, but under no accusation deserving of death or imprisonment. So there's this tension going on that you're going to see throughout the end of Acts. Many are clamoring for Paul's death. Those that have the authority to put him to death are saying, we can't find a reason to put him to death. So you come now to Acts 26 and Paul's been shipped off, if you will, from Jerusalem and he's now in Caesarea. Caesarea is a city in Judea. It's on the coast and Last year, some of us that were able to travel to Israel, we traveled through Caesarea. It was really a Roman city, if you will, in Judea with all the Roman things, the auditoriums and the palladiums and the palaces and all these things. So Paul is taken to the city of Caesarea and he's there and he's going to face the governor. He's already faced Felix. Felix says, I don't know what to do with this guy. Felix is no longer in power. Now we come to Acts 26 and Festus is the Roman governor. So as Acts 26 opens up, here's the scene, and we're going to read it, but I want you to get the context, and then we're going to try to walk through this chapter. Paul is in a very weak place. He's the prisoner. Paul's literally in shackles. He's in chains. He's he's bound, and he's going to stand in Acts 26. He's going to stand before two guys. He's first going to stand before the man Festus. Just so you know some character development here, Festus is the Roman governor. Festus is in charge of all Judea, all Judea, land of Israel, under Roman control at this time. Festus is in charge. So he's going to stand before Festus. But then another guy comes on the scene, and his name is Agrippa. This is the other guy of authority that Paul's going to be standing in front of. His name is King Herod Agrippa. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, you've heard the name Herod. You've heard of the Herodian family in Israel. They were very famous or infamous, very cruel family. This is the same Herod who imprisoned Peter and ordered the execution of James. This is the same Herod, the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who reigned during the time of Jesus and ordered the execution of all the children. So this is a bad dude, if you will. This is a, this is a member of the Herodian family. So they're kind of in cahoots with one another, and they're, they're working together, and, and they hear about Paul, and they say, you know what, we want to hear from this guy, Paul. So they call this big event, and I'm going to pick it up, and I'm actually going to read a couple verses out of chapter 25 to set the stage. It's in Caesarea. 
There's this huge event coming. Festus has not been governor very long. He and Agrippa haven't actually publicly gone and done anything together. So this is their kind of public display of power and authority over all of Judea and Israel. Verse 23 begins this way. So hang with me. There's a lot here. And I'll just tell you, we're going to try to walk through this chapter. As I said earlier, I'm going to be covering a lot. So you're just trying to, uh, there, there's a lot in this chapter that's going to be very encouraging and challenging for us this morning. So Acts 25, 23, here's the scene. So on the next day when Agrippa came together, parenthetical, with Bernice. Stop right there. Every time Agrippa is mentioned in this story, it always says, and Bernice, or with Bernice. They say, who's Bernice? Well, I don't want to go too much into detail of this, but Bernice is his lover. Bernice is also his close relative. It's just a real sordid relationship. And every time you see Agrippa mentioned, it's always and Bernice, with Bernice. In other words, it's a picture of the sin just follows him around everywhere he is. So here's this ruler, and the sin is just shackling him. So here's Agrippa who shows up with Bernice amid great pomp. If you want to circle that word pomp, that's, a, that's an underestimated word. The, the word literally means fantasia. That's the Greek word, if you know anything about the Disney movie Fantasia. In other words, great show is going on here. It's a great spectacle in Caesarea. They, they come together with great pomp. They enter the auditorium. They're accompanied by commanders. Now, there's five commanders, and each commander has a 1,000 men at his disposal. So here comes all the Roman guards. Here comes all the king and his procession. The people of Caesarea have come out. It says the leading people of the city were there, and Festus is there calling the shots. So I want you in your mind's eye, I want you to see this just massive spectacle. If you're in the, if you're in the seats there and you're watching this, as just a commoner, so to speak. You're going, man, the power of Rome. Man, the power of Agrippa. He's, he's the king over Israel. And you're just in awe of all this apparent display of power. End of verse 23, a little statement says this, and Paul was brought in. Now it's intended to be a, a tension a little bit. It's intended to be weighted to one side. Paul comes in. So in the midst of this huge pomp and circumstance, here comes Paul. Now, I don't know how you picture Paul, but here's what history says about Paul. Uh, Paul is a prisoner. Paul is walking in in chains. Listen, Paul's been locked up for at least two years at this point. Two years have passed since Acts 23 and 24. He's probably pale. He's probably gaunt. He hasn't eaten a lot. I mean, prison food, you know, just probably not very good food. So here comes this pale, weak little man who shows up in his prison clothes, and he just stands before this huge group of people and before these men of power. John Stott, a historian and a theologian, says, According to tradition, Paul was only a little fellow. Of unimpress he was unimpressive in appearance. He was balding. Nothing against being bald. It's just what it says. Uh, with beetle brow. <laughs> Sorry, Ed. I, uh, with beetle brow, hook nose, skinny legs, yet full of grace. That sounds like Ed. Anyway, where... <laughs> 
wearing only a plain prisoner's tunic along with handcuffs, handcuffs, he nevertheless is going to dominate the course or the court with his quiet Christ-like dignity and confidence. It's a glorious picture of it appears, here's the power, here's the authority, here comes this weak, emaciated little man in chains, and you're about to see where the real power is. That's the picture. And remember that the same Spirit of God that's alive in Paul is the same Spirit of God that's alive in every believer. So with all of that as background, I'm going to try to walk through this chapter as best I can. So you get the scene, it kicks off verse 1 of chapter 26. So Agrippa, the king, says to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense, Paul says. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself very fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today. Paul's being polite. He's being courteous. He's not trying to schmooze. Just being polite. Verse 3. Especially, now watch this. Paul says, especially because you, King Agrippa, you are an expert in all the customs and questions about the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Here's what Paul's doing. Agrippa is a Jew. He's the king of the Jews. Now, he's much closer to being a Roman practically because he's such good friends with the Romans. But Paul is shifting the situation. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Paul is no longer even concerned here about his own defense. Paul is concerned about the soul of Agrippa. And he subtly turns it to Agrippa and he says, Agrippa, I'm so glad to be here because I know you, Agrippa. You are an expert in all the customs and questions about the Jews. Agrippa, if anybody understands what I'm getting ready to share about the Messiah, it ought to be you, man. And slowly you see the one who appeared to be the judge is now going to become the defendant, if you will. Watch that. I love that. Paul shares a little bit of his background. Verse 4. He says, So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and, and, and at Jerusalem. Remember, one of the charges against Paul is he was no longer loyal to his nation. He's no longer loyal to the nation of Israel, and Paul's trying to discount that in a sense. Verse 5, he says, since they have known me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that, end of verse 5, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Paul says, if you know anything about me, I'm thoroughly Jewish. In fact, I'm a Jew of Jew. I was a Pharisee. Now, you've got to remember in this day, we hear the word Pharisee, and if you, if you studied through the New Testament, we kind of think of Pharisees as running around in black, black hats. You know, they're the bad guys, if you will. But in that day, if you're a Jew, you looked up to the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders. They were the, think of it this way, the Pharisees were the ultra-conservative ones who were trying to fight for the purity of their nation. They were seen as heroes. And Paul said, listen, for a long time, I was one of those guys. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he said. Verse 6, and now... It's a huge statement here. He says, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. What does that mean? 
Paul says, look, you got to understand, I'm not holding out anything with the gospel that's new. I'm holding out what began with Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the forefathers. I'm holding out the completion of what began in human history, and that is the hope. The hope of what? Verse 7, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. Oh, for this hope, O king, I'm being accused by the Jews. Verse 8, and he says, with all of this, why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? See, Mike, I'm not following all that. What does that mean? Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying the message that I'm holding out is nothing new. The message that I'm holding out is from the beginning of scriptures to the end. It's been the hope of the nation of Israel. And the hope was this, that one day a Messiah is coming. And one day a Messiah is going to come and is going to redeem his people. And one day a Messiah is coming and going to, going to build his kingdom that's going to last forever and ever. And here's what scripture has taught, Paul says. You should know, Agrippa, from the beginning you'll know the Messiah because he's going to raise from the dead. So he's turning the situation. He's saying the whole basis of my argument, Paul says, is that there has been one that's been raised from the dead. Job 19, 25, Paul could have quoted this. He doesn't here, but he's making reference to a thread that's pulled throughout the Bible, this thread of resurrection. This thread that there's one coming, and you'll know that Messiah because there's a Redeemer who's going to come. Listen to Job 19, verse 25. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Why? Because there's a resurrection. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Paul could have quoted that. Paul could have quoted Daniel 12 too. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Why? There's a resurrection. The grave is not final. Some to everlasting life. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. Psalm 16, 9, David says, No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. For you will not leave my soul among the dead and allow your Holy One, talking about the Messiah, to rot in the grave. Paul says, listen. Agrippa, you need to get this. Any Jews that are listening need to get this. The message I'm holding out is not anything new. It is the completion of what's been prophesied for thousands of years. The Messiah is here. And I can give witness to the fact that he has risen from the dead. You've got to understand, Paul is banking everything he's going to say here on the reality, the historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, for you and me this morning, that ought to give us great strength and great comfort as believers in Christ because your faith is not just rooted in something ethereal that floats around out in the heavens. Your faith is also rooted in a historical reality that the God-man came and walked among us. He was in the grave three days, but he did not stay in the grave. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's a historical reality. Your faith and my faith is rooted in that. Listen, everybody on the planet hopes for something and is hoping, is hoping in something. Something, is, something that they're placing their hope. 
I've got to have conversation after conversation. I've been in situation after situation. I've met with people who are holding, you know, their hope is in Buddha maybe or their hope is in Muhammad maybe or their hope is in their next purchase maybe or their hope is in dead religion maybe. I don't know what it is. Listen, you need to be strongly encouraged like Paul was even before Agrippa and before Festus. Your hope is in the reality of one who went in the grave and is alive today. And listen, Pastor Mike, you're sounding like a preacher. Okay, listen, you got to get this. When John the Apostle was on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1, he has every reason to punt his faith because it looks like the end. There's going to be times in your life, child of God, that it's going to seem like you're on the island of Patmos. That's where John had been exiled to. And that nobody's with you, nobody's around you. It seems hopeless and everything is done. John from the island of Patmos, Jesus came and made an appearance to him. You know what Jesus said? He said, I was the one who is dead and now I am alive and I'm alive forevermore. There will never be a moment in eternity future that your Savior is not very much alive. That's good news for you, by the way. And Paul says, listen Agrippa, my hope... And what I'm holding out is not some Jewish fable. It is the the fulfillment that has been taught for thousands of years. The Redeemer is here. And you know because he rose from the dead. Verse 9. So then, I thought to myself, that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul's backing up and he's saying, Okay, I want to tell you more about my past because here's the premise of Paul's argument. Jesus has risen from the dead and I'm a transformed man because of it. So verse 9, Paul says, So before I met Jesus, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I thought he was just some zealot. I thought he was just some rabbi gone wild. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also they were being put to death and I cast my vote against them. You do remember Paul, B.C., that's before Christ, was a mean dude. And Paul was zealous to wipe out anything that he thought was coming against his understanding of Judaism. He thought these zealous believers in this Jesus needed to die verse 11 and as I punished them often in the synagogues I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities I don't know what your testimony is like of your life before Jesus Christ and maybe in your, you're in this room and it's your testimony now because you've not come to meet Jesus Christ Paul's saying listen I had one mission, man. It was to wipe out these new, this new church, this, these new Christians, as they were called. I pursued them. I lied about them. I persecuted them. Paul is saying in all of that because I believe Jesus of Nazareth to be a myth. And then I'll just paraphrase here. Paul is saying, I, I couldn't understand it because he was dead and they were still going out and talking about him. I thought that was so ridiculous. I'm going to put all these guys to death because they were a threat to my understanding of Judaism. Side note here. Paul says, ultimately, he treated God's people in such a way because that's the way he, he viewed Jesus. 
In other words, here's the application for you and me. How we treat God's people ultimately reveals how we view Jesus. In other words, it's absolutely inconsistent. Paul says, listen, I, I view Jesus in a certain way. Therefore, I view these people in a certain way that they just needed to die. It's impossible to be a born-again believer and not have high regard for the people of God. And to love God's people. You hate Jesus, you're going to hate his people. You love Jesus, you're going to love his people. So Paul goes on, verse 12. So he says, here's what happened. So one day I was so enraged, I was on a journey to Damascus. Now you've heard the story about Paul on the road to Damascus. He's going to recount it here quickly. He said, I was on the road to Damascus with authority and commissioning of the chief priest. Man, they had sent me there at midday. That's important because in that day, if you're a traveler on the road, you know he's not riding a bus here. He's on camels or horses, right? He's walking through the desert. At midday, nobody walked. Everybody went for shelter. Everybody went for cover. Not Paul. Paul is bent to get to Damascus to destroy the believers. At midday, O king, when the sun was at the center of the sky, I saw on the way a light from heaven. It was brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. Verse 14, and when we had fallen to the ground, in other words, it was not just a light, it had a power to it. I couldn't explain it. I didn't know what it was, King Agrippa. Then, verse 14, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, that's Aramaic, Saul, Saul, called him by name. Remember, Paul and Saul are the same guy, right? This is pre-Christ. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, there's a ton in that, and we could camp out there for the rest of the time. Paul is on his road to Damascus to wipe out people because they're following this dead Jewish rabbi. And now, this Jewish rabbi in Paul's mind is appearing to him and saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As if to say, what you do to me and what you do to my people, you're doing to me. And Paul's going through his mind, who in the world are you? Into verse 14. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What in the world does that mean? What's a goad? Any farmers here, you know a goad is the sharp object that you prod oxen or you prod pigs or something. Maybe your kids. I don't know. Whatever you use it for. Anyway, so he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words... Paul, it's useless for you to resist. Paul, God, God is after you and God is on you. And for years and years and years you've been fighting it. And Jesus is making himself known to Paul. Listen, that is a very real statement. Some of you in this room might be fighting with God. God is after you. God is pursuing you. God is trying to make his love known to you. It's like kicking against the goads. God was after Paul. Paul says what any of us would say. Here he is laying in the road in the middle of the day. He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you? And what he hears is going to blow his mind because remember, his understanding of this Jesus dude is a dead man. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And the important fact here is not even what Jesus says. It's that Paul is face to face with the reality. This guy that I thought was dead is very much alive. And his world is rocked. 
He doesn't know what to do with it. This one that he thinks is dead, this one he thinks he understands, and this one he's after persecuting his followers, now appears to him as very much alive. That's why Paul's argument here to Festus and to Agrippa in front of all of these people. Remember, Paul is standing here in front of these thousands and thousands of people. His argument is this. There is one who came from heaven that's now alive, and my life has been radically changed by him. So Paul says, remember what my life was like before. I was the one trying to kill believers. I met Jesus who's alive. I met him on the road. Verse 16, or verse, yeah, 16. Jesus says to him, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you. So Paul says, then Jesus says to me, get up. He says, I have a purpose for your life. I've appointed you to be a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which will appear to you. Here's the thing I want us to see very quick from this. Paul's conversion immediately becomes Paul's commission. There's no difference. In other words, Paul doesn't spend weeks and months and years being a part of a church and growing in his faith. And then maybe one day he says, you know what, And I I need to go out and make Jesus known. (laughs) No, Jesus makes it very clear, Paul. Listen, your conversion and your salvation and your commission to be my witness is one and the same. Guess what, brothers and sisters? It's the same for you and me too. Now, Paul had a specific call here, a specific mission that Jesus had sent him on. Ours may be a little bit different from Paul. But you've got to understand, as we continue to grow as a church, it is inconsistent for us to say, yes, I have met Jesus. Yes, he has transformed my life. Yes, I'm a follower. Yes, I've been changed, but I'm not on mission. The two don't go together. They just don't. They don't go together in Paul's life. They don't go together in the life of a follower. So Paul says, listen, I I went from a persecutor to now one who is proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on, verse 17, he says, Paul, I'm sending you, I'm, I'm commissioning you. And he says, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Now, pause for one second. Verse 18 is one of those verses that if you want a verse to memorize, you want a verse to pray, verse 18 is loaded with theological meaning. I'm not going to take time to talk through all of it. I want you to read this on your own. But Jesus is still speaking to Paul here. He says, okay, Paul, here's where where I'm sending you. Here's here's the people I'm sending you to. And here's the, the reality of those that do not know Jesus Christ. He says, I'm sending you to a people to open their eyes. Why? Because let's remember, brothers and sisters, as we go out and we pray for our names and we go out and we make Jesus known, we, before Jesus, were blind spiritually. And the ones to whom we're going to make Jesus known, your neighbor, your friend, or your mother, or whoever it may be, or your child, apart from Jesus, they are spiritually blind. And Jesus says, I'm sending you out that you may open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Apart from Jesus Christ, it may look pretty, it may be dressed up, but the soul's condition is darkness, utter darkness. Jesus says, I'm sending you to turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. 
those who do not know Jesus Christ and have been redeemed from the dominion of Satan are under the dominion of Satan himself. Listen, here's your application. Do not be surprised when lost people act like lost people. Really. And don't stand with our religious contempt and pat our foot at how bad the world is and look down our noses. You are no different except you've been redeemed and God has opened your eyes and he's pulled you out of darkness and given you life. The last thing that ought to breed is contempt or arrogance. But it ought to be a brokenness to say, my friend... When you pray for these three names and you pray for your neighbor, it's not somebody that just has a different opinion from you. It's not from somebody that just acts a little different from you. Apart from the gospel and the saving grace of Jesus, they and we before Christ are blind in darkness under the dominion of Satan and bound for eternal judgment. And Paul and Jesus says, Paul, that's to whom I'm, I'm sending you. Go, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Listen, you want a verse to pray for those on your list? You pray Acts 26, 18. Lord, open their eyes. Lord, turn them from darkness to light. See that? Now, very quickly, I want to try to land the plane here and bring this to some application in our lives. So, Back up, kind of remember where we are. So, so Paul's sharing this story. Agrippa's here, the, the Jew, and you get you got Festus the king. These thousands of people are listening around. This little emaciated man in chains has now riveted the crowd. They're, they're all kind of listening to what this guy says, not because it's Paul, but because he is the authority of the Son of God in his life. So now they're listening to Paul. Paul says, verse 19, so King Agrippa. I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, Jesus transformed my life, Agrippa. You need to understand this resurrection that I've been talking about and this resurrection that's been predicted for all of history is true because you're looking at a guy who's been radically transformed by the living Jesus Christ. He's not a myth. And the commissioning that he gave me, it did not prove disobedient. In other words, here's, here's what happened. Verse 22, we'll skip ahead. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to the small and great. Paul says, listen, my conversion came along with my, my commissioning. I stand before the great. I stand before the small. It doesn't make any difference to me. I just want to make Jesus known. He says, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. There's another dig to Agrippa. He says, Agrippa, you call yourself a Jew. You should know as much as anybody. What I'm talking about here in the Messiah is not a new message. It is the completion of the message that began in Genesis through the end of the Bible. Listen, what Paul's saying here, listen. He says, verse 23, that the Christ was to suffer, that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light to the Jewish people and then to the Gentiles. In other words, you need to understand, you don't read two Bibles, an Old Testament and a New Testament. You read one story of a Savior. And from Genesis to Revelation is the coming of the Savior, Christ. From Matthew to the end is his life, and Revelation is a future that you and I can bank on. 
And Paul says, I'm not holding out anything new. You as a Jew, Agrippa, you should know I'm simply holding out what's been prophesied for thousands of years through the prophets. The Messiah is here. And now I'm holding out the message of the Messiah who has come. Now, Paul says that in such a way, I said earlier, the one who should be the one on trial and the one who should be serving as the defendant, the one who, I don't know, 10 minutes ago looked like the weak one in the room is now challenging those who are standing and sitting on the thrones of judgment. Watch what Paul says. Watch what happens here. It turns and then we're going to conclude with this. So what happens and how do they respond to this? I mean, Paul's been railing and Paul's been preaching and Paul's been holding out Jesus and Paul's been talking about resurrection. And and here everybody's like, man, this little emaciated dude, there's something about that guy. So here's Festus, the Roman governor, and here's Agrippa, the king, and here's what they say. Look at verse 24. First, I want you to see what Festus says to Paul. He interrupts Paul in an angry, loud voice, verse 24, and says, While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus says in a loud voice, Festus says, I've had enough of this, Paul. You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. In other words, Festus had no background. He had no understanding of this. His initial impression of this is this is just madness. You know about this guy resurrected? You're talking about a guy alive from the dead. This is just madness. Paul back to Festus. And by the way, it is great boldness here for Paul to speak back to the Roman governor. He's in chains. And look what he says, verse 25. Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. I utter words of sober truth. I have just a couple minutes left. I'm going to give you two quick takeaways, and here's your first one. Ready? In any place, before any person, the message of the gospel is one of sobering truth. In other words, when you hold out the message of Jesus and you hold out the resurrection from the dead and you hold out that we are blind because of our sin and the only hope is in the resurrected Messiah, the Son of God, you are not holding out a fable and you're not holding out a myth. You are holding out a message of sober truth to the world. I don't know how they're going to respond Paul doesn't know how they're going to respond. That's not up to you. Festus responds and says, Ha! Paul, you're nuts! He's not finished. Verse 26. Now, Paul to Agrippa. So remember, Paul starts this whole dialogue, and on his mind is Agrippa. He, he's concerned for the soul of Agrippa. So Festus comes back and says, you're nutcase, Paul. Paul says, I'm uttering words of sober truth. And then verse 26, Paul turns it to Agrippa, and he says, for the king, Agrippa, knows about these things. Don't you, Agrippa? 
And I speak to him with confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things escape your notice, Agrippa, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, Agrippa, you've been around for the last three years. You've heard what's going on. You know what's going on in Jerusalem. You've heard about the resurrection, haven't you, Agrippa? And Paul, in a place of weakness, is turning it back around to Agrippa, not in a rude way, not in a way that is demeaning, but in a way that puts Agrippa. Now Paul is holding out a message of sobering truth. Verse 27, I love this. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? (laughs) I know you do, Agrippa. You've been brought up a Jew. You've been taught from the beginning of your life about this. Do you not understand that everything that was taught in the prophets has now come to absolute fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ? Agrippa, he is your Messiah. Then Agrippa, back to Paul, verse 28. How do you respond, Agrippa? Then Agrippa says to Paul, (laughs) Do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa doesn't know what to do, so he kind of turns it back around. He says, do do you think in just this brief time you're going to persuade me, Paul, to be a Christian? And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me to this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Agrippa says, Paul, are you trying to convince me to be a follower of this Messiah? And Paul unashamedly says, You got it, Agrippa. You got it. In other words, there's time for wisdom and there's time for building relationships and we do that well. But there are times where it should become very clear to that person that doesn't know Jesus. This person wants me to know this Savior of theirs. It's not, listen, it's, you're not responsible for the response. Paul wasn't responsible for the response, but Paul held out the message from all eternity that was a message of sobering truth. Here's takeaway number two, and we're going to be finished. The team can come on up and begin to prepare for our response time. Takeaway number two is this, for you and me, in any place, before any person, the messenger... Many ago we talked about the message of the gospel. Now we're talking about the messenger. We're talking about you. The messenger of the gospel can speak with great boldness and great courage in any situation before any person. You may feel like you're the person who is weak. You may feel like the person who's down a couple notches, so to speak. But just like Paul before the king and before the governor, because of the person of Jesus Christ in any place before any person, the messenger of the gospel can speak with great boldness and courage. You know why? Because the great king himself, Jesus Christ, said to you, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Go. Go. You will never face a situation, you will never face a person in any situation it is that has greater authority than King Jesus and King Jesus has sent us to make him known to make him known God chooses to use the foolish and weak things of the world to shame the wise we're going to sing a song in just a minute what a wonderful name this is a great song about the power and the name of Jesus
I hope this morning you're challenged by this. Paul uses our times and us who are even weak to make himself known. I'll just end with this. I've been reading reading a lot in the month of October about different reformers. You know, we're celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation and all that. I read this week about a lady named Lady Jane Grey. In the 16th century, she was actually part of the royal family, but she was a young woman uh, who, upon reading the Greek New Testament that had been given to her, she realized, man, everything that around me is false. She rejected the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and she rejected the Church of England, and she wouldn't pray to Mary, and she wouldn't do all these things, because the Bible said Jesus is Jesus alone. So ultimately, it led to her death. She was martyred for her faith, and someone found her Greek New Testament, actually her sister, and here's what her Greek New Testament said. She had written this in the flyleaf. She said, now, sister, rejoice as I do as I go into death, that I shall be delivered of this corruption and put on incorruption. As I lose this mortal life, I will gain an immortal one. You know why she could say that? Because she knew her Savior lives. Jesus lives. Lady Jane Grey, when she died for her faith, was 17 years old. A teenager. In any place, before any person, the messenger can speak with great confidence, great boldness, because we've been given all authority of the King Jesus. Amen. Would you bow your heads for just a second? I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing as a response. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray your word does not return void as we just try to walk through Acts 26, Lord. God, would you make us bold? God, even as believers this morning, would you open our, bl- our eyes? We, we tend to be blinded even in our own lives. And I got, God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that by the power of the gospel and your grace, you would open their eyes, that you would deliver them from darkness to light, and they would see the resurrected Savior, Jesus, and by faith cling to you this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.